Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 10. Judges, chapter 10. We're going to be talking today about another broken Savior. And we'll see today, as we continue down this path, those broken Saviors become more and more evident that they do not fulfill what we need them to fulfill. And so we're going to continue down this path. But before we get there, I want to take just a moment and talk to you for a second, find out some, some stuff from you. So we just celebrated 4th of July, big uh, Independence Day on Wednesday. So um, tell me, what's your, uh, what's your favorite tradition that comes with 4th of July? Barbecue, all right? Somebody else in the back said something? Pie. Is that what I heard? Pie. All right. And what pie in particular? Peach. See, I thought it was apple. I mean, that's American, right? Peach pie. All right. So what else we got? Matt, you got something back there? Shooting fire rockets into the next vacant lot. That's very, very specific. All right. So fireworks. Um, I, I don't know if, I don't know if any of y'all have been to, um, our family the last few years. We go to Moss Wright Park for their fireworks display. I don't know if you've been to that. If you haven't, one time in your life you need to, to go to that. They do a, a spectacular job. It's awesome at Moss Wright, the fireworks. And I mean that 20, 22, uh, 23, 25 minutes of just pure explosions. And I, I assume it's legal because they let us do it. But we are literally like 200 yards from where they're shooting them off, where we sit, our family does. You can feel the vibrations in your chest when they explode. It's awesome. All right. And so we only last year we took our dog and uh, he's been in therapy for the last nine months trying to get over that. But um, we didn't do that this year. So we had a we had a great Fourth of July um, growing up in my family. Fourth of July was a huge holiday. We would start on the third. We would have 60 to 70 people at our house. My dad, some of you have had his cooking. My dad loves to do barbecue. He loves to do hamburgers, hot dogs. We would do hamburgers, hot dogs, bologna. My dad's bologna on uh, the third that night. Um, and then the next day we would have barbecue and ribs and all of that. And when you had 60, 70 people over, it was a big, big party. So let me ask you this. How many of you ate some barbecue on the 4th this year? All right. How many of you ate a hamburger? All right, we got a couple. How many of you ate a hot dog? How many of you ate none of those things and are un-American? Let me see you. Let's see. All right. All right. Do you realize that on 4th of July, Americans love hot dogs? In fact, on the 4th of July alone, Americans consume around 150 million hot dogs. Now, according to what I saw, what Americans eat on 4th of July alone in hot dogs, if you could line them up end to end, they would stretch from where I'm standing to somewhere around Sydney, Australia. We love them. Nobody's as good at eating hot dogs as this guy, though, right? Y'all know who this guy is right here? Chestnut, Joey Chestnut, right? How many of you know who know who Joey Chestnut is? All right, this year Joey Chestnut, fine American male. I mean, he uh, he is he has captured back the world's competitive eating landscape for Americans. Um, he ate seventy four hot dogs in ten minutes. Breaking his own world record at the Coney Island 4th of July hot dog eating contest. Just so you know, that's somewhere around 22 or 23,000 calories, apparently. So light eating day for him. I hope it was his cheat day um, because 
If not, he's going to be in trouble. Um, somebody did the calculations, and and it was on the internet, and it was a it was a guy that that um, is a an editor on the internet, a guy that works in editing. So I'm sure this is true. Said that by doing the calculations from the Nathan's Hot Dogs that does it site, that the 74 hot dogs he ate accounted for 1,776 carbs. And he said, "What's more American?" Than Joey Chestnut winning a hot dog eating contest with 74 hot dogs on 7-4 with 1776 carbs. He is a true American miracle is what he is. That's what he is. That's like the Tim Tebow stuff, right? With the 360, remember that passing yards? But have you ever looked at a package of a hot dog? Seen what was actually in there? Or you just eat in blind ignorance, like whatever it is, it's good. Now, I'm not talking about the all beef Nathan's hot dog. I'm talking about the cheap ones, the, 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 I won't give a name brand, but you know what I'm talking about, right? If you look at those, one of the first ingredients that you'll find on there, now the FDA's regulated this, so it can't be more than 20% of the hot dog, is something that will be called mechanically separated meat. But doesn't that sound good? Going to a restaurant, can I get some mechanically separated meat? Now, it could be mechanically separated turkey, mechanically separated beef, but this is what the USDA defines mechanically separated uh, turkey as. A paste or batter-like poultry product manufactured by forcing turkey bones with attached edible tissue through a sieve under high pressure, a process called advanced meat recovery. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Advanced meat recovery. And that's a main ingredient along with sodium phosphate, sodium erythrobate, sodium nitrate, and maltodextrin. Man, I know we're getting close to lunch, and I don't mean to make your mouth water so much with all of that. Point is, hot dogs are not what you would call pure meat, right? Right? We're going to talk today about a guy named Jephthah. And this is what Jephthah does. He takes the Israelite faith in God and he mixes it with all this other stuff and forms kind of a hot dog of religion. That's a mixture of good stuff and lots of stuff that's not and then tries to pass it off as the real thing. And the truth is, in America, there are a lot of people doing the same kind of thing. They take a little bit of something from this and a, mix it with a little bit of something from that. And the result is a concoction that you can hardly call Christian. And it's more than just a little bad for you. It's spiritually to- toxic. They take a little Christ and they mix it with some karma and some Kanye. They take the lion of Judah and attach him to a donkey or an elephant. And they claim that it all works together as true Christianity. What we're going to see today in the story of Jephthah, he's got a little bit of meat of the Israelite faith mixed with a whole lot of sodium nitrates and maltodextrin of his culture. And the results are terrible, disturbing. How many of you, just off the top of your head, I'm just interested in this, know the story of Jephthah, what we're about to wade into. All right, we got a couple. How many of you... Like, you may have heard the name, but you have no clue what we're about to wade into. All right? We're going to walk through a very disturbing story, and I hope when we come out on the end of it, we go, okay, what can we learn from it? 
So in Judges chapter 10, starting in verse 6, we start with the same phrase that we've seen almost every time we've opened the Bible in the book of Judges. In fact, almost every sermon that I've started, if not every sermon that I've done, has started with this phrase. Verse 6 of chapter 10. Then the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs, the gods of Aram, Sidon, and Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines. They abandoned the Lord and did not worship Him. Now I want to do something with you. We're going to do some math, and I know it's, it's, it's Sunday morning. You don't like doing math on Sunday morning. But it's simply this. We're going to count, okay? So I'm going to point to the name of a God that they worshipped, and we're going to start counting with the number one. That's a good place to start, right? And we're going to see how many we get here, all right? So you count with me. That's the idea, all right? So that was weak. All right, here we go. We'll start over. Here you go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Let me ask you a question, all right? In the Bible, what does the number seven symbolize? Completeness. Perfection or completeness. This is the most detailed discussion of what the Israelites did in going to other gods that we see so far in the book of Judges. And what we see is they are giving the picture that they completely abandoned the Lord. They didn't just walk away a little bit. They completely abandoned the Lord. And the understanding is not only did they abandon the Lord in the first place, but when they get in trouble, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, when they got in trouble, they went back to the Baals and the Asherahs and Aram and Sidon and Moab's gods and the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines. They went to them instead of God. They searched for answers in the gods that had already failed them instead of going to the Lord God. Completely walked away from him. Next verse. Because if you know the cycle of the judges, you know what's coming next, right? They sin, and the Lord gives them over to servitude. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to the Philistines and the Ammonites. And then it tells us this. They shattered and crushed the Israelites that year, and for 18 years they did the same to all the Israelites who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites and Gilead. The understanding is... Every year, like clockwork, these groups would come in and just destroy them. In fact, the words used there, shattered and crushed, are two words that are almost the exact same word. There is one letter difference in the original language, and they have kind of a a meaning that when they're put together, they come together to mean completely devastated. Like, this is the strongest language used in the entire story of Judges so far about what happened when Israel was turned over to other people. And what happens is they are completely devastated by their enemies. And in the midst of it, it tells us at the beginning of that passage, they continually turn back to the gods that they thought would help. In fact, the understanding in this passage is an understanding that we have throughout Scripture that part of the problem with sin is not just that we abandon the Lord. It's that when we sin or when we walk away from Him, we abandon the Lord and then we try to fill our lives with substitutes that are not good enough to give us what we need. For instance, in Jeremiah 2.13, the Scripture tells us that the problem with the people, and I think we've got that um, we put up, God says, for my people have committed a double evil. 
They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. They've left me. They've forgotten me. They have walked away from me. But then they have dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. And trying to make it on their own, they have given their lives to things that will never sustain them. And the tragedy of sin in our lives and in the lives of the Israelites is that not only did they walk away from the Lord, but they tried to fill their lives with things that would never satisfy that's the way sin is. We think, well, okay, the Lord has put these restrictions on me or the Lord has made, called me to do this. I'm going to walk away from that, but I'm going to fill my life with some things and that's going to help me out. And when we get there, we realize that we dig ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into a pit because we are giving our lives to things that will not hold water. The Israelites are people that had just come off of 45 years of prosperity. And in the midst of that, they did not... Show gratitude to the Lord. Jeff earlier was talking about our need to be thankful, to be grateful, to have an attitude of of gratefulness, of gratitude towards the Lord. And what happened is they'd had 45 years of peace. If you look back at chapter 10 and first one, and we're not going to read that, the first four or five verses, it's about two guys that, that led them well, Tola and Jair, for 45 years. And in the midst of that, they didn't learn their lesson. They didn't submit to the Lord. For 45 years, they were comfortable. They were safe. They had peace. And the moment those guys walk away with good leadership, they immediately turn back to the idols of the other lands. And the lesson from this passage is that comfortable living often produces weak character. That they had lived comfortably for 45 years and they had not developed the character that they needed to survive when those guys were gone. Yesterday afternoon, we spent some time doing some yard work, um, which is, you know, always just a blessing and uh it was cool cooler yesterday it was you know it was almost cold it was like a heat index of 97 like it was it really cooled off the cool front came through and we did yard work yesterday and you know the worst thing that when you're doing yard work is like you're out there sweating you're doing stuff you're you're wheat you're getting the weeds up you're mowing you're weed eating you're you're getting all that stuff raked up all that is when you got to go inside for just a moment to get something right because when you walk inside man it feels good What's the first thing you want to do? I want to grab water, find the recliner, and say, man, let's just take a break, like for four days or so, just a little break, right? Because the comfort in there makes us want to settle. And the Israelites had been comfortable for 45 years, and they had fallen into the same traps, into the same place as they had been. Chapter 10 tells us that Israel was greatly oppressed. So they cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you. We have abandoned our God. We have worshipped the Baals. They say, Lord, it's that time again. Hey, Lord, they, get, they come knocking. Hey, Lord, hey, remember? Hey, we realize that we're in the cycle again. Um, we sinned. Yeah, we got that. You sent the, the judgment, got that. Okay, let's just skip to the deliverance part. Lord, it's that time. Come on, Lord, come on. Time for you to come out. Time for you to do something. Hey, Lord, let's go. Let's go. We're sorry. Hey, can you come on? And for the first time in the book of Judges, God says no. He tells them, hey, do you remember when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Mananites oppressed you and you cried out to me. What did I do? And they're like, you delivered us just like now. Lord, it's the same thing. 
He says, but you've abandoned me and worshiped other gods. He says, therefore, I will not deliver you again. And then he tells them, this is really where he is saying, listen, you have followed other gods. When you need me, you come to me. But other than that, you go your own way. Go ask the other gods you have chosen to deliver you. They don't want God this time. They just want the deliverance. They want the relief. Reminds us all that there are times in our lives when we can go to the Lord and ask the Lord for forgiveness for deliverance for something we need in our lives but the truth is we're not actually going to the lord because we want the lord we want what we think the lord will provide and when we're doing that it's an attempt on our part to manipulate god's hand instead of trusting in faith what he's doing are you using God or are you worshiping him? Are you trying to get something from him? Are you here because you think this is what will give you the best life now or what will give you what you need financially or what will get you further along in your career or help you with your family? Or are you here because you're desperate in your need for God and you're here to worship him? The people seem to see the error their way. In verse 15, the Israelites said, we have sinned. And then they say this, which is important, because the difference between just a little bit of concern and actual repentance is, they say, deal with us as you see fit. If you rescue us today, Lord, you can do whatever you want to do with us. Get us out of this situation, Lord, we want you. We depend on you, but then you can deal with us however. And then it tells us in verse 16, they got rid of the foreign gods among them, and the Lord became weary of their misery. It means there that what happened is they said, okay, we, 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 we actually see the ways that we have fallen off. We're going to get rid of our idols. We're going to get rid of all those seven things we talked about, the idols that we had, and we're going to repent. Now, there's lots of debate about whether there's actual repentance here or not, or if this is just another way around it, and God finally just becomes, you know what, this is about my name and my glory, which it always is. But I think here we do see that God is genuinely concerned for his people and their misery, and he says enough is enough, and he decides to deliver them. Now, here's what's interesting about his decision to deliver them. He's going to deliver them through a very imperfect man named Jephthah. And here's what we know about Jephthah. He was a man who would not have been their first choice at all. In fact, as we've walked through the book of Judges, and we talked about all these weird names of Ehud and Barak and Gideon. Each time we've gone down that list, Abimelech, the person that takes over and delivers Israel becomes less and less likely of a candidate. He becomes someone they would have looked to at the last resort. Gideon, if you remember last week, was the least important member of the poorest family of the worst tribe of Israel. Well, this week we get to Jephthah and his story is even lower. So we're just going to read through this story of Jephthah and I'm going to give you three or four principles on it. But let me just warn you, if you're not familiar with this story, it is not good at all. Chapter 11, starting in verse 1, says, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior. Now, this is in contrast to Gideon, who, remember, God said you're a valiant warrior, but he was a coward in the midst of, a, of the wine press, hiding from people. Jephthah actually was a valiant warrior. But he was the son of a prostitute, and Gilead was his father. And so this whole Gilead people, they're looking for a leader, and they say, hey, what about Jephthah? Well, we can't use Jephthah. His dad, our dad, Gilead, had 
relations with a prostitute and he's the result of that. And he is literally an illegitimate child and we can't have him be our leader. So Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when they grew up, they drove Jephthah out and says, you will have an inherit, no inheritance in our father's family because you are the son of another woman. You are illegitimate. Get out. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Now, I know the land of Tob doesn't mean a lot to you, but that was not a very savory place. That was an unsavory location. It was not a good location. And some worthless men, the word worthless there is actually kind of nice to these men. They were scoundrels. They were thieves. They were guys. This is not a Robin Hood story where they're out stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. This is Robin from everybody killing people. This was a rough group of people compared in some ways um, when you read some commentaries to like the gangsters of Chicago in the 1920s. Ruthless gangs of violence. And the leader of that gang is Jephthah. And then some worthless men joined Jephthah and went on raids with him. And so here's the picture. The Gileadites have sent him away. He is an illegitimate child of their father. And they say, you can't be a part of the inheritance. And while he's gone, he builds up a reputation as the tough guy, as the leader of a group of scoundrels that is taking root in this other section. Next verse. Sometime later, the Ammonites fought against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war with Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said, wait a minute, we got to have him. we got to have somebody like that that's going to deliver us. They said to him, come be our commander and let's fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah says, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> you don't want me. You didn't want me before. You kicked me out of the land. Don't you hate me? Didn't you say I was illegitimate? Didn't you say I had no place in your father's family? Didn't you say I could be a part of your group? Why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? And the obvious answer is because they're in trouble. And he says, I'll tell you what, if you'll make me your leader, I'll be. And they say, we're going to offer a leader. But they use a word that's not kind of ultimate leader. He says, no, no, no. I want to be your leader. I want to be the ruler. I want to be the head is literally what he says. And they finally... Agree. Jephthah, the illegitimate child, becomes the leader of this group of people. Now, I want you to notice something in this passage before we hold on. Is there any semblance that God directed this process with the Gileadites in this passage? Is there any clue that he's there? We got the clue that he's listened to his people and he's going to deliver them. But it looks like Gileadites went and found Jephthah on their own, apart from God. Now, there's going to be a ceremony we're not going to read where they try to come before God and they say, Okay, God, we found our leader. Won't you bless our leader, God? It's like we do sometimes in our lives. God, man, I've got a great plan for my life. Could you bless that plan for me? Hey, man, God, I found this job. I think it would be awesome. Why don't you bless that job for me, God? Hey, God, I know that your word says this, but my family, man, we're going to do something completely different. Won't you bless that for us, God? So they bring him, dedicate him. Jephthah's first thing is he's going to do diplomacy. So he calls the people together of the Ammonites and he says, listen, hey, I've got some, some questions for you. Why are you attacking us? And they say, we're attacking you because you took our land. And Jephthah gives three good reasons. He says, listen, it's not actually your land. When we took the land, we took it from the Amorites, not the Ammonites. 
And even though the Ammonites think that it's their land, it was the Amorites' land. And so the Amorites are the ones that deserve the land. If anybody deserves the lands, but you are the Ammonites, you're not the Amorites. And I don't see why people get confused when they talk about all these Bible people, right? He said, secondly, we just responded to their aggression. We tried to peacefully walk through their land. They said, no, they attacked us. We killed them all. That's what happened. We're sorry about that. And third thing is, God's the one that gave it to us. So if you've got a God that's better than the God we serve, which there is no God better than the God we serve, if you've got a better God, then call out to your God and let him deliver you from them. So come and bring it on. And the guys say, okay, we will. And so they decide to attack Israel. And here's what happens in chapter 11, verse 30, or verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh and then Mizpah of Gilead. He crossed over to the Ammonites from Mizpah of Gilead. Okay, you follow me? Because here's where it's going to get strange. So it looks like a basic story right now. Jephthah's there. God says, okay, you're the guy. I'm going to use you. It says the spirit came on him. He starts to march through and just destroy these people. In fact, in a moment, we'll see that he crossed over and he fought against them. And the Lord handed them over to them. He defeated 20 of their cities with a great slaughter. And so the Ammonites were subdued before the Israelites. It seems like a normal story. But in the middle of that, after the spirit of the Lord's come upon him in verse 30, Jephthah made this vow to the Lord. If you, in fact, hand over the Ammonites to me, whoever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me when I return safely from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord. And I will offer that person as a burnt offering. Now, the positioning of these two is important because the vow comes after the spirit of the Lord has already come upon him. Right. This isn't I made a vow and the Lord said, "Okay, that's great. Then we'll I'll accept the vow. The Spirit of the Lord was already there. Jephthah's trying to earn favor from a way that's different than when God intended. So verse 32 tells us that he crossed over the Ammonites to fight against them. The Lord handed them over to him. He defeated 20 of their cities with great slaughters all the way to the entrance of Mineth and to Abel Kermim. So the Ammonites were subdued. Verse 34. When Jephthah went to his home in Mizpah, There was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughter besides her. Do you see what they're emphasizing here? Now, that's twofold. First of all is because everyone knows the relationship between a parent and an only child. Secondly, it's there because if he is to lose this child, he has no others. And third, she was the one that was supposed to carry on his family's name. When he saw her, can you imagine what's happening internally? He tore his clothes and said, no, not my daughter. You have devastated me. You have brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. His daughter responds to him. My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, for the Lord brought vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites. She also said to her father, let me do this one thing. Let me wander two months through the mountains with my friends and my my virginity. Now, the reason she's mourning her virginity is because in that day and age, the biggest thing she could do for her dad was to give him children, to carry on the family legacy. So she's mourning the fact that she will never give him a legacy. Next verse. 
Go, he said, and he sent her away two months. So she left with her friends and mourned her virginity as she wandered through the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father and he kept the vow he had made about her. And that's rough, right? There have been commentators that have tried to soften the blow on this and said, listen, let me hear a couple of things to know. First of all, when he made the vow, he didn't mean human. He meant like anything. He thought like an animal was going to come out or something was going on. But when you look at the passage in the original language, you just can't do that. It, it, you can't soften that. When you see it, it is, he talks about greeting them. He talks about welcoming them. He, he uses a, a masculine pronoun to indicate that it is something human. There's others, even people that I, commentators that I respect that try to say, well, he didn't really sacrifice her at the end. He gave her to a life of celibacy, that she was going to be a virgin forever and would never give him a child or a legacy. But that doesn't seem to be what is suggested. In fact, it's not what is suggested in the scripture. And so the questions then become twofold. In a modern culture like our own, like what, what in the world is that story? Why is it in the Bible? Why did he make that vow? Like when I was growing up and I heard this passage preached, the, the main theme of the, of the sermon was don't make rash vows to God. I don't think that's the main theme at all. And in fact, the main theme I think is here is that we find what he did was not what God intended or wanted or expected or liked or sanctioned. And so the question is, why did he make the vow? And the first answer to that is because that's how you please the pagan gods he had put himself in a culture around when he was with those men attacking and raiding places. He was around people that followed pagan gods. And the way that you pleased pagan gods was to give them sacrifices. But it is something that God never commissioned. In fact, in Deuteronomy 18.10, he forbids ever sacrificing humanity, any kind of human. And so what we have here is he makes a vow because he has put into the trueness of the Christian faith, of his faith of the Israelite God, the sodium phosphates and the poultry paste of the pagan gods and thinks that's how you ought to get to God. But it's not. And the second reason is I think he was just desensitized to violence. His culture was a violent culture, and this kind of thing is what you did to the God of the war machine to get victories. You gave up people's lives. And before we judge him and his culture, let us remind ourselves that our culture is no better when it comes to our personal idols. So a woman can tear her family apart and devastate her kids because she finally realizes she married the wrong person and she needs to find true love and happiness. Just being true to herself. Our culture idolizes romantic and sexual fulfillment. We have at all times, it seems, a show on our airwaves, one of the highest rated shows, where people are assessing 25 people that they want to decide who they want to have a relationship with. And that's how true love is found. If an evangelical pastor decided that he preferred men to women and left his wife and kids for them, he would become a national hero. Celebrate it because of his choices to live out his true self, no matter the price that his family paid. If a man neglects his family in order to get ahead, we say, well, that's just what you have to do to survive in the business. If you're going to succeed in the finance world, you've got to work till nine every night. You've got to work weekends. You just can't take days off. Or someone in our culture 
is pregnant at an inconvenient time. And so they eliminate the child and say, well, you have to have the right to determine what will shape your life. Before we shake our heads in bewilderment at the culture of Jephthah, we should realize that we're probably not as advanced as we think we are. He thinks he can make a deal. God, you know what? I want to make sure I win this thing. So if you let me win, I'll sacrifice something to you. It is a hot dog faith. It's not the pure meat. There's only one deal God will ever make, and it is this, that he has already provided for you forgiveness for your sins and his righteousness if you will surrender your life to him. And here's the thing. The story of Jephthah doesn't get any better. In fact, the ending of his story is in the next chapter. And we don't, it's not going to be on the screen. You can go back and read it later. But when he gets through defeating the Ammonites, the Ephraim comes up and they have this habit of coming up after the battle's been fought and going, hey, why don't you ask us to do anything? You know, like the kid, like you cleaned up the whole house and they walk in and go, you didn't give me anything to do. Well, I would have if you would have come up earlier, right? And they get mad at each other and they say, we're going to burn down your house, Jephthah. And Jephthah says, bring it on. And he ends up killing 42,000 of his fellow countrymen. When he kills those 42,000, His life ends with him ruling only six years. Sometimes people say, okay, so so he made the vow. Why did he keep the vow? Because the truth is, God didn't intend for him to keep the vow. Maybe you could excuse the vow saying, well, it was extreme zeal. After he saw his daughter, surely he could have said, God, I'm sorry. I made a ridiculous, foolish vow. And God would have said, absolutely don't. Because God doesn't give favor or salvation based on our works. He doesn't give it based on our lifestyles. He has proven to us through his sacrifice of his son that he approves of us always. And what we see in this passage is that Jephthah had been completely captivated by the culture he was in. And that's the lesson really of this whole story. We are far more influenced by our culture than we ever realize. Jephthah didn't realize it, but a lot of his outlook on God and life were shaped by the culture he was in in God's world. He ends up with a concoction of faith that was not Christian, wasn't biblical at all. He ends up with a hot dog instead of pure steak. Dealing with culture is a difficult thing. I mean, there are three ways you can do it. First of all, it's just to integrate it uncritically like Jephthah. Just say, whatever the world is, I'll just take that in and I'll put it with my faith. There's others that say, no, 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 I'm not going to have anything to do with the culture. And so you culture yourself off. You create a Christian subculture. You don't grow your hair the way they do or you dress differently or you have your own movies and music and never entertain the thought of the culture. The third way, which I think is the biblical way, is to be in but not of. To enter but to critically look at what we can affirm and what we need to reject. But in order to do that, we have to know the Word of God. You see, this idolatry that we have in this world has devastating effects on people around us. Who paid for Jephthah's hot dog faith? His daughter did. 42,000 Ephraimites did. My wife, my kids, you as a church, suffer for my idolatry. 
The idolatries that we cherish in this country have devastating impacts on our lives. One in three children grow up in a single parent homes and only a fraction of those are the result of the death of a parent. In our country, there are 3000 abortions every day. Our appetite for pornography has created a sex industry where the average age of the girl who works in the sex industry begins at 13 years old. In our country, there are 30 million, mostly teenagers, who have been diagnosed with anorexia or bulimia because we have put forth this idea that we have to have the perfect figure. We are not as sophisticated as we think we are. And the question we have to ask is, how will we stand out as God's people in the midst of that? But the point of this whole book, the point of the book of Judges, the point of the Bible is, That all of us, no matter who we are, where we come from, or what we've done, need a better judge. Now, when I hear the book of Judges, I think of people like Gideon. Just before we even did this study, you think of Gideon and Samson. I remember Jeff dealing with this in the sermon that he preached. Man, you hear Samson, you think, man, strong man. He's like a hero. And then you read his life, and it's tragic. Gideon's life turns out tragically, even though he has the big victories. The Israelites have tragedy after tragedy. In this passage, Jephthah is the first judge that the deliverance time is shorter than the oppression time. And we come to the end of it and realize that we can't do this ourselves. We need a better judge. We need to be able to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel which is. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've come from. That Jesus has already chosen you, has shown favor on you, and you can have eternal life by believing and submitting to that. That's the pure meat of the gospel. Like Jephthah, Jesus was driven from his brothers. He was despised and rejected of men. But unlike Jephthah, we didn't have to call him back to come help us. He ran back to save us. Jephthah started with diplomacy, but when it didn't work, he was not afraid to fight, killing not only thousands of Amorites, but Israelites as well, even his own daughter. Yet with Jesus, when pleading did not work, Jesus took the war into himself. When it came time to die, he did not kill others. He himself died for us. I didn't have to offer my life or my daughter's life on the altar to earn his favor. He has already taken that spot. Jesus didn't take us to the river Jordan and threaten to kill us if we didn't say the right thing like happened with the Ephraimites. He took us to the cross and pronounced salvation and peace over us. Jephthah believed we could only find favor to God through extreme sacrifices. Jesus offered favor with God as a free gift because of the price had been paid by him. Jephthah was, as all of them are that we've read about, a broken savior. But they all point to the need for the perfect one. And that is Jesus. And if you're here today, and maybe even as I listed off some of those things that I talked about with bulimia or anorexia or abortion or divorce or pornography. You're somebody that has found yourselves captivated by that instead of Jesus. The truth of the gospel is you can be completely forgiven for all of it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, by the way, that acceptance and forgiveness is already there. You just have to believe it and accept it. If you're someone that's never given your heart, your life to Jesus Christ, he is the only place 
to find a real salvation. Let's pray together.